If you're listening to Keeping Democracy Alive Now, I know you care very much about democracy and maintaining our republic. But how much do you know about your state legislature? Do you know who your state reps and state senators are? It's really important, at least as important as the top of the ticket. I'm Bert Cohen. Thank you for joining us today, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. The American War for Independence was driven by anger and determination to overthrow a system of government from one which merely enacts the whims of the king, replacing that powerful monarchy with a republic, a government of, by, and for the people. Really? Over two and a half centuries later, in the age of nationwide media focused on the simple and dramatic, the eye-catching theater of presidential politics, uh, well, what about the determined drive for responsive local and state government that is less exciting, but at least as important as what goes on at the top of the ticket? Let me put it this way. You, dear listener, are all too familiar with Biden and Trump as the race for 2024 is well underway. But can you tell me who your state representative or state senator is? And in my state of New Hampshire, for example, our governor is remarkably popular, yet there's virtually no awareness of his positions on any issues that really affect people's lives. Uh, and uh, our governor is Chris Sununu. People like him, but people don't know where he stands on the issues. How did this happen? This seeming abandonment and alienation from self-government. What does it mean for actual democracy? And is there anything that can be done about it? Does it even matter that there's such widespread and rather profound ignorance of the work of state legislators? Well, in the world of instant gratification, being a citizen, as our founders intended, maybe it's just too hard, totally too unrealistic to expect in 21st century America. Is that goal of the 18th century founders now an unattainable ideal, as Walter Lippmann suggested? There are a lot of questions, and it has a, it, it's very important for democracy. Our guest today is Alan Aaron, Alan, is Alan Ehrenhalt a contributing editor from, yeah, from Governing Magazine. Good magazine, where if you were in legislature, you would have seen that magazine. Uh, Alan Ehrenhold served for 19 years as executive, the new issue of which features his essay, What's the Matter with Legislatures? And Stephen Rogers, a political scientist at State University, has a new book called Accountability in State, in State Legislatures, which informed our guest's essay. Well, thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. This is a serious issue. We've got to keep democracy real. And people just leave that out. They don't, they don't vote the so-called bottom of the ticket as much as they used to, I think. Well, as you point out in your article... American democracy rests on quite a few fragile foundations, but one of the most important is the idea that when voters go to the polls, they more or less know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As the 2024 race for the presidency begins to suck all the oxygen out of the American political room, is this true? Do voters know what they're doing? Has it changed in recent decades? Um, no, voters don't know very much about their legislatures, um, who represents them. 
Um, I'll confess to something as of this morning, uh, because of redistricting, I wasn't sure who was representing me in the Virginia House of Delegates. Uh So if I and now I know, but if I didn't know, then uh, it's a pretty safe bet that uh, most other people are not very well aware of who is representing. Um, Something like, I don't know what it is, uh, only 20 or 25 percent of of Americans uh, can name their state legislator. And uh, a a very small number can tell you anything that uh, who do know who that is. can tell you anything about what that person has done or what kind of government he or she has been giving them. So, yes, we are we face a situation um, in which legislatures operate almost uh, in a kind of an informational vacuum as far as the voters are concerned. Uh, has this gotten worse? That's a complicated subject. I would say voters have never known a whole lot about their legislatures um, but I think in the 19th century, um, when the federal government was not uh, really doing a whole lot except uh, delivering the mail and right. uh, put, putting up an army, uh, people paid more attention to what was going on at the state level. We all, you also had uh, very high turnouts uh. Uh, in the 19th century as a result of uh, partisanship. Um, that declined over the course of, of the 20th century. Um, when the franchise has expanded, uh, participation and, uh, and knowledge uh, generally go down. Um, now, mm. how bad a thing is that? If you, if you, we, can, we can take a look at a little history here, or, or we can wait and do that later. But in the 1950s, uh, the average state legislator was someone who had been chosen by a local business elite, usually a small-town business elite, and was accountable to them. And we're talking about people who were uh, bankers, um, merchants, lawyers, um, and those who represented them in the legislature did have a certain accountability, not to the general public, but to an elite that existed at the local level. Um, Later on, uh, if you talk about the 1970s or 1980s, you had... uh, a change, and you had a collection of essentially freelance legislators mm. um, who got elected on the go, nominated themselves, basically, got elected on their own, not not part of any uh, organization. Um, and uh, they, they really weren't accountable to anybody in particular, except that they had to be attentive to their constituents. Um, that was the one thing they had to do. If they did that, they could pretty much vote however they wanted to vote, uh, in office. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have a situation in which um, legislatures are highly partisan institutions. Mm-hmm. Districts tend to be uh, rather lopsidedly controlled by one party or the other, to a great extent because of gerrymandering. Yes. Uh, and so uh, legislators, um, nor the vast majority of them have safe seats. Uh, a third of them um, um, a, a third of them face no opposition at all in a, in a general election. And so you could argue that um, we really have an unaccountable group of legislators, and um, that's not a very good situation for American democracy, as I, I imagine you would agree. I do very much agree. And, you know, if you think about what legislators, reps, and senators do, 
it affects people quite directly. Uh, I, when I was in the state senate, I worked on things like large water withdrawals. Uh, there's there's issues of uh, waste management. Uh, there's so many different local issues. The schools, what what can happen in the schools, and uh, guns, for example. So many different issues. The it seems like they've been sort of uh, sent down. The big issues that Congress, you know, could vote on, but they they don't want to. Sometimes they send it down to the local level, and that's where people can really have direct input. As you say, it used to be, you know, the business leaders of a community would pick out who's going to serve their interests, which is has pluses and minuses to it. But but now, you know, every time a state legislator or rep or senator uh, gets a letter. Uh, or, or contact from his constituent, he or she figures there's probably a hundred people who feel the same way. It matters. There is this direct line of input that people can have if they want to, but eh, it's not so much fun. It's not so, you know, it's not on the news all the time. It's not on CNN or MSNBC. So people don't do that. And I, I did, I was attracted to talking about this article largely because of, frankly, my own uh, history. I, I did serve seven terms in my state Senate from 1990 to 2004 uh, when I chose not to run for re-election. If you asked, this this kills me, if you asked voters in my district, of which there were over 50,000, who their state senator was, no one would have, I mean, virtually no one would say they knew who it was. But if you asked them, do you know Bert Cohen? Oh, yeah, of course I know Bert Cohen. But they didn't connect me with being their state senator. I left the state's state house nearly 20 years ago, uh, and as your essay notes in Michigan, a very important state uh, in terms of the electoral college coming up, nearly 70 percent couldn't name anything their legislators had done for their district. I mean, I, I, I took, even though I took pride in my accomplishments, it was, took a lot of heavy lifting. It did, but one year I was campaigning at a factory gate. I got to illustrate this. A woman stopped me for a few seconds, looked me up and down and said, I like your smile. I'll vote for you. Yeah. I was happy to have her vote, but my goodness. <laughs> you know, it just it amazes me how the people don't look into what the uh, legislature does. But, uh, Alan, what, uh, what does the legislature do that Congress doesn't do, the president doesn't do, that is important? to constituents? Well, many of the things, that, many of the responsibilities it has are ones that it shares to a greater or lesser extent with Congress or, or with the executive branch in Washington. But um, if you make a list of things, uh, of areas where the states have primary responsibility, you would talk about health care, um, taxation, um, regulation of guns, um, now we have abortion as a state issue as well, which it wasn't until uh, a few months ago. Um, now, they don't have exclusive responsibility in most of these areas, but they have primary responsibility, um, even though they share it with uh, local municipal government and county governments and also with the, the federal um, political establishment in Washington. But that's that's a that's a rather important list, and it only scratches the surface. And one of the uh, long-term effects of the uh, 
the so-called Tea Party back in 2010 or so, was that they 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 figured it out. They focused on local elections, city council, uh, select boards, school boards. That's where the action was, and that's how they made long-term big changes ahead. And <laughs> Democrats never figured that out. And and you talk about education. Today's Trump-centered Republican Party has very openly made war on public education. And this, this is an important local issue. As with all authoritarian governments, they know that widespread practice of critical thinking, if kids are skilled in critical thinking, gosh, it's not in their interest. They not, they not only ban books, they storm into school board meetings this is sort of an outgrowth of the uh, Tea Party, attacking teachers' ability to stimulate their children's learning as they best know how to do. This, the idea of self-government that was sought in the 1770s, how does this kind of uh, attacking uh, uh, local school boards uh, relate to, uh, to the self-government that, that our founders uh, sought to put into place? Well, it's interesting that you mention uh, local government and school boards. I would say that uh, the states and their legislatures are kind of sandwiched in the middle of the political system because a fair number of voters do know what's going on at the local level. They know what their school board is doing. They have a sense of what their mayor is up to. Are the potholes being fixed? Um, There, the level of information is not too bad. Similarly, there is a rather large amount of information, although quite a bit of it is misinformation, uh-huh. about what, what's happening in Washington. The states get stuck uh, and the legislatures get stuck in the middle. And this has been made worse in recent years by the fact that uh, the daily press does not cover state government uh, the way it did uh, even a, a generation ago. Um, uh-huh. So uh, on the other hand, if you're really interested in what your legislature is doing, uh, you have more opportunity uh, than you ever did probably to watch it on uh, streaming video um, or to subscribe to a blog that's all about the legislature. So it's not that the information doesn't exist. It's that people are not uh, taking advantage of it. Um, mm-hmm. As for the founding fathers, as, as you know, they were Democrats only up to a uh, small Democrats only up to a very limited extent. True. They really didn't trust. Uh, the judgment of uh, the mass of the mass electorate, although most and in fact most people were not in the electorate at that time. Yeah, true. Um, but um, they certainly felt that those people who voted, whether they were a minority or how large a group they were, did have to know something about the sort of government that they were that they were getting, and um, I think they would say um, along with. Um, the political scientists uh, that I, uh, uh, whose work I admire, um, that um, no, this is not a sort of system that the political that the founding fathers would have uh, appreciated. Well, it's also true that in the in the you know 1770s, the founding fathers uh, were. Uh, they're kind of elitist. They they wanted to separate from from the mother country, but the, the idea of having local business people pick the state legislators, I think they would have been comfortable with that. The idea of 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 justice for all, equality for all, 
didn't really come in until, well, until uh, Abraham Lincoln, actually. Uh, but uh, so there's been limited, I mean, democracy has always been, you know, a push and pull situation. And a lot of us really like democracy uh, and, and would like to see more of it. The, the question is, uh, and, and you quote one of your uh, political scientists uh, that you admire, V.O. Key Jr., he asserted in the 1960s that voters are, quote, perfectly capable of judging the quality of government that they get. And you and I are both, were both big fans of late David Broder. His assertion that the voters were ahead of the politicians, that they knew more about what they needed than, than those who served in office did. I don't know. That, I, I love David Broder, but uh, I'm not sure that that's true, that they know more about what they needed than those who served in office did. Or maybe, I don't know, you know, the opportunity to have the office holders listen is much more real at the local state legislative level than at the congressional level. That's for sure. They have fewer people to uh, to answer to. So what about David Broder's assertion and and it was uh, political scientist key uh, correct? And in, in, is he correct that pe- people are perfectly capable of judging the quality of their government that they get? Um, well, whether they're capable of it or no. not, I suppose <laughs> he, in some sense, yes, they're capable of making those judgments. Uh, but they don't spend the time that would be required to do it. And I... I would tend not to agree with the argument that people simply don't have time to pay attention to their legislatures. People have time to do the things that they set out to do and that they consider priorities. If people wanted to spend a little bit of time during the day or even at some some points in a given week paying attention to what the legislature was up to, they could do that. They're capable of doing it. it's not something that, that they do. And, you know, the, the more we distrust government, as we've come to yes. in the last half century, uh, the less inclined people are uh, to, to worry about that. Um, so uh, Broder, David Broder was an interesting man, and um, he was a man of, of uh, impeccable character. And along with that went an optimism about the American democratic system, which I think... Um, enlivened his career as a journalist, and it was something that he um, relied on to a certain extent. He thought that the people, uh, he had a respect for the people and for the voters, and and this made it possible for him to have the career that he had in journalism. Is is it true that they were ahead of the politicians? No, I don't think so. Um, David Broder and and V.O. Key were right about a lot of things in their careers, but I don't think this was one of them. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, what's been called the engine of democracy, state legislators. Oh, how boring is that an issue? No, it's not. It does take time. Uh, Citizenship is, as someone said, not a spectator sport. If you want to be participating in your self-government, it's there. It's there for you. It's open to you. But uh, we're speaking today with Alan Ehrenholt. Aaron Halt, uh, who is executive editor, I believe, of the uh, Governing Magazine, very good magazine that uh, a lot of legislators do rely on. He's written an essay called What's the Matter with Legislators? Uh, and democracy, you know, trusting democracy. 
that does bring us back to a, a little side issue, I suppose, education. Uh, I, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, or uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of those two uh, old white guys, <laughs> said that uh, democracy depends on an educated populace. And we, we the, the Republican Party of today is assaulting public education. They're, they're attacking history books. They don't want people to learn history. And that, I think, erodes and probably intentionally the capability of, of people being actual citizens, participating as citizens that, that, uh, that was intended. And that, I, I think, is dangerous to democracy. If people, you know, if, uh, you know, they have these uh, Moms for Liberty, which is anything but liberty, they want to uh, control what, what's taught in schools. And that's really important for uh, democracy and as you say, you know, it, it, it doesn't take a lot of time to find out what's going on at the local level. And it affects us very, very directly. Um, I, I wonder if you could just compare what state legislators' primary responsibilities are as compared to those of U.S. Congress. Well, um, in many ways, they overlap. You know, we have what's sometimes described as marble cake federalism, in which uh, the state and local and federal levels of government uh, participate together, or at least um, uh, in, some, in conjunction with each other in dealing with the most important issues. So uh, if, uh, there's no easy answer to the question, right. what does Congress do and what, what do legislatures do? Um, there is... Uh, from a century ago, the famous uh, remark by Justice Louis Brandeis that um, that the states um, are the laboratories of democracy, uh, that they try things, and then if they work, uh, they're done at the national level. Mm. And, I, I, you know, um, I think that to a certain extent that's still true. I mean, there, there are numerous cases in the last 20 years in which the states uh, started doing something, and when uh, 10 or so of them did it, um, mm. The federal government got involved. For example, uh, the don't call list mm -hmm. uh, was mm -hmm. something that was created at the state level. I don't know if you uh, worked sure. on that in New Hampshire, but um, enough states did that uh, that Congress uh, took action um, there. Um, uh, similarly, on things like tobacco regulation, the states did take the lead on that. So it's not quite true to say the states aren't doing things. Right. Um, what's true is that the members of the legislature have essentially a, a free ride, and um, they are not punished if uh, they misbehave, uh, or at least not very often, uh, unless they misbehave grossly in uh, some sort of a personal scandal. Um, and some of them even survive that. But um, for the most part, uh, once you get elected to a legislature, you can st in, a, in a safe seat, you can stay as long as you want. Um, and that's probably not very good. The, the absence mm -hmm. of competition um, is a flaw in the current democratic system. Hmm. Well, it, it, races are getting a heck of a lot more expensive. When I first ran in 1990, I think just, you know, a few thousand dollars was all you would need. Now, it's amazing. And you, you may not know that in New Hampshire, it's it's a volunteer job. They pay the same as right. they, they did in the uh, 1770s, $100 a year. 
Yes, and they're, they're worth every penny of that for sure. <laughs> but but <laughs> there's people who spend $200,000 getting elected to it because it is important. It is uh, uh, something that, that people that affects people's lives and and so many issues now are you know handed down uh to the uh, state level i mean heck abortion you're right you well, know. that's that's a, perhaps the best example uh, best recent example it's huge the in the war of independence the colonists were angry at least in part because there was no system of accountability on the part of the unrepresentative literally quite distant government. I mean, way across the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't have airplanes. You've been an observer and participant in the process of governing at the state level for a long time. And you assert that there is now a disturbing absence of accountability. You say that because people in safe districts, they're not always safe districts, but they they do get uh, gerrymandered for sure. Why, Why do you say, tell us about this absence of accountability, and what might be done about it? Well, um, those are two questions, and, um, yes, and, they, and they, they, <laughs> they beg two separate answers. Please do. The answer to accountability simply means that if the voters don't know what the legislature is doing, uh, the legislator uh, is basically free to do whatever he wants, whether right or wrong. Um, you're probably familiar with the concept of moral hazard, um, which um, Stephen Rogers uh alludes to in his in his book on legislatures moral hazard is the concept of moral hazard suggests that when people know they aren't going to be punished for something they are likely to misbehave um, if you're a bank if you have a, a guaranteed uh, bank deposits you, uh, in accounts up to five hundred thousand dollars uh, you may be more tempted to play irresponsibly with, within that $500,000 because you're going to get your money back in the end anyway. Similarly, uh, a corporation that uh, believes it's too big to fail, as right. has been true of, of lots of corporations in the last decade, um, uh, can be irresponsible. And we saw that uh, in 2008 in the, uh, in the real estate uh, scandal, uh, the, the real estate um, Right. And um, moral hazard simply says, uh, if nobody's going to punish you, you you don't have to worry about what you're doing. And um, uh, Stephen Rogers, I think, quite appropriately applies this to state legislators. If they have safe seats, if nobody is going to run against them or nobody of any uh, nobody's going to run a campaign of any consequence against them, then they really are free to do what they want. Now, in Mm. some cases, that's that's good. You know, it means that people who want to act in the public interest can do that. But it also means people who want to act selfishly uh, or irresponsibly <laughs> are basically free to do that. And we've, we've seen lots of examples of that. That's for sure. And we will get back to the second part of the question later on, what we can do about accountability. It's, it's good to, uh, to do a kickoff, uh, you know, a final with, with that, with that, but we have a, uh, other issues, and as you talk about, uh, you know, who is being served, who is accountable, and to whom, in the state legislature, I know in New Hampshire, uh, I'm not sure what it's called now. I, I believe it's called EverSource, the electric company. It used to be Public Service of New Hampshire. They ran the show every year. Didn't matter who was in there, they ran the show. Uh, they, they got what they wanted, and I believe they probably still do. 
and you know that's I, Franklin Roosevelt, one of my favorite uh, people, uh, talked about uh, how the system of capitalism must be made to serve the common good, and having you know PSNH just in charge without question, and I'm sure. That's the case with lots and lots of other states. That there's a certain uh, powerful corporate entity that uh, that runs the show, and there's there you know if a, a state rep if if they know they're going to get their way no matter who's in there, boy that's not so great for uh, for a democracy. But uh, so you, you you might be familiar with uh, if we go back a century or more than a century. Uh, legislatures were much uh, bad as things are now. They were bought and uh, bought uh, lock, stock, and barrel uh-huh. by uh, e- economic interests, often one in the state, like the copper interest in uh, who ran Montana for decades. Uh, and and you you recall you will recall that at that time legislatures elected U.S. senators. Right. Uh, they were not elected by popular vote until uh, 1914, uh, and so. Um, you really had corporate interests that were owning legislatures. You may have heard the remark by uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, the titan of uh, oil refining, uh, that he did everything in the Pennsylvania legislature except refine it. Um, <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but yeah, I understand. Uh, I thought that was a pretty that was a pretty good remark. And so, um, one thing that you could do to feel a little bit better about legislatures right now is to look at what legislatures were like in the 1890s when uh, single interests essentially, uh, uh, bribery was rampant. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's rampant now, although right. it exists. Um, uh, economic interests don't control legislatures in the same way, but uh, they have great influence as a result of campaign contributions. On the other hand, um, that influence is tamed to some extent when you have, have legislators who are in safe districts and don't have to worry about running uh, very hard. Uh, and so um, the influence of money is somewhat reduced in those situations, yeah. but it's not really reduced in a good way. Uh, because, because what you have, instead of a, a member of a legislature being accountable uh, to the liquor industry, um, mm. or some similar uh, in, uh, ent- enterprise, um, th- they're, they're, they're not accountable. They're not accountable at all. Um, yeah. I remember, uh, in the, I don't remember it, but in the 1950s, uh, Artie Samish, who was a, a liquor lobbyist in California, said, um, he said, I don't care who the governor of this state is, I'm the governor of the legislature. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was deposed as a result of that, but for a period of many years, he really was a, a kingmaker and a, and a leading figure in the uh, in, in the California legislature. Well, we don't have that anymore. We we, we have a, a, a bad situation, but it may not be as bad a situation as as we, as we had uh, you know a century and a half ago. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've made. I believe history goes in many different directions simultaneously. It gets worse and it gets better. You know, it, it varies. Uh, it does both, and it's it's. There's no easy answer. One of the uh, uh, again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking about uh, legislatures. That's something people don't pay as much attention to as 
he and I think they should, uh, because so much goes on there, and and you can have more local control or local input on it. Our guest today is Alan uh, Aaron Halt, who's uh, executive editor with Governing Magazine, and he's written "What's the Matter with Legislators." And I'm old enough to remember uh, Tip O'Neill, this late House Speaker, who was an amazing guy. He was fond of saying, "All politics is local." He told this story, which you've probably heard, of he ran for election one year and he lost. And he was walking home feeling dejected. He turned, uh, there was his neighbor, let's say Mrs. McGillicuddy, sitting on her stoop. He said, you, I, how did I lose? You voted for me, didn't you? And she said, no. And he was stunned. He said, why didn't you vote for me? Well, you never asked me for my vote. Now, <laughs> I bet he did after that. Now, many decades later, and it's so important to ask people for their vote. And I know any legislator knows that you have to ask. Has he, has he been proven wrong all these decades later? Is politics no longer local with the, with the uh, power of the, uh, the Internet and the social media and, and the 24-7 uh, news uh, networks? Is it no longer local? Yes, I think the I think the answer is it is no longer local. To the extent that people, uh, the average voter, has an understanding of politics, it's national politics. Yes. And when they vote uh, in a legislative election, um, the outcome is often based on what they think of what's happening uh, in Congress and right. in, uh, in, and at the White House. Right. Not uh, they will they will vote for or against the legislator assuming there's a halfway competitive election, which often there's not, but assuming there is, they will base their vote to a large extent on their feelings about, at the current moment, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Um, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. Right. Uh, so if politics were local, uh, then when you were in the New Hampshire Senate, people would make, and, and, and maybe they did then, but uh, let's, let's say it's now, people would, would vote based on a reasoned judgment about what that legislator was doing. Mm. And um, as we've been discussing for the last half hour, um, to, the, to a large extent, uh, they don't know what the, the legislator is doing, and that is not because the information is unavailable. It is because they choose not to pay much attention to mm. it. Uh, and as I mentioned before, that has something to do with uh, a distrust of political institutions uh, in general. Um, yeah, and distrust of uh, institutions. And you reminded me, I think it was 1992 when I ran. And also, I'm in New Hampshire and in Maine, right next door, Bill Cohen was running for re-election to the U.S. Senate. Senate, Cohen, Senate, Cohen. I kind of hitchhiked on his name, I will confess. <laughs> And I knew he was popular, but people didn't look at that. They thought, you know, there was that confusion there. Oh, yeah, they've seen Senator Cohen. I, I took the win. <laughs> but Yeah, well, well why not? <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, in 1978, did people know more or less than they, did to, than they do today? You know, mm. that's like all these things, it's a complicated question. Right. You could get more news about your legislature out of the daily newspaper in, in your local community or yes. in, in your state uh, than you do now when um, local news and uh, state news have been atrophying for more than a decade. Yes. On the other hand, you know, everything, all this is on the other hand. Um, mm. We didn't have uh, streaming video that would allow you to watch legislative sessions. Now, I don't 
you know, I spent 20 years covering Congress, and uh, and so I watched a lot of legislative business. But uh, do I would I turn on C-SPAN now to watch the House of Representatives conduct quorum calls? No, no, I wouldn't do that. But you could, um, and, and if you found out when key debates, if there are any debates. Um, are taking place. You can watch that. And the number of websites that are devoted to legislative business has actually increased uh, by, by a large number. So, so I, would, I would put out this principle that if you are really interested in what a legislature is doing, this is a golden age of information. Mm. But, that's all, but it's only a small, very small percentage of people that have that interest. And if you have only a middling interest in what's going on in politics at the state level, um, you're not going to do very well because your newspaper is not going to help you and the local TV station certainly is not going to help you. Yeah. So um, there's a, it's a little bit of sort of a little bit of each each side, six of one, maybe half a dozen of the other, or maybe six of one and a quarter of a dozen of the other. I don't know. Yeah, it, it things change. Sometimes they get better, and that's an interesting point about many websites being devoted to uh, to, to legislature. So the options are there. It's not that, that you can't do it. I mean, the newspapers. Let's face it. As you say, they they bled a lot, and they're a hell of a lot smaller now, uh, and and they they even cover national stories. It's a real tough time for local newspapers. We used to de- we the legislators used to depend. But it's it's really hard uh, to get in there and to get the attention of people. And when you mention, if you, you know, say government to an average person on the street, uh, uh, the the reaction is generally not positive. How do you feel towards government? How do you feel towards Congress, etc.? You know, there's a lot of negativity there, and much of that trickles down to the state legislators, as you were saying. You know, people look at the top of the ticket and they vote largely based on that. They don't pay attention to the so-called bottom of the ticket. Uh, and you mentioned the elections of 1974 and 2006 as examples, as well as the disasters for Democrats in 1994 and 2010. Do you think it's trickle-down politics, what happened in those years, that makes you say, this isn't the way things were designed to work? Um, no, it's not the way things were designed to work, but, but, but you're right. In, in, in 1974, um, people voted Democratic for their state legislatures, um, not because of anything the legislatures were doing, but because of resentment against uh, Watergate and Richard Nixon. Um, similarly, in 1994, people were upset at Bill Clinton, and they voted Republican, although also to be accurate, Republicans by then had done a much better job of coming up with candidates and funding than they had in the previous two decades. Mm. Um, but in uh, 2006, uh, voters were angry about the Iraq war. Um, George Bush was not on the ballot, and uh, uh, Democrats who were against the war, and uh, any Democrats for that matter, almost any, um, did well, and Democrats gained huge numbers of legislative seats. So um, if you look at these water, so-called watershed elections, um, the, legisl- the results in the states turn on national issues, um, yes. not on anything the legislature is doing. Yeah, that's that uh, has proven once again, many times over and over again to be unfortunate. And uh, but that but that is the way it has been. And uh, what happens at the top uh, oftentimes just dictates what happens below because people 
most people don't look at it. And, you know, we've all heard many of our fellow citizens acknowledge that they don't vote for state legislative elections. I've asked people and people say, oh, no, yeah, I, I think that voting for president and Congress is enough because that's, that's all they hear about. And whatever knowledge they have, that's, that's what they know about. The reality is possibly legislative elections are even more impactful to their lives than the top of the ticket. What? Well, yeah, um, go ahead. You know, to give you a current example, if as many people are, you're upset at what the Republican Party is doing in Washington. You are many times more likely than otherwise to vote uh, Democratic at the lo- at the state level. Um, not so much at the local level. I, I, again, I think the states are in some ways uh, the outlier here and the problem in the system because. People do hold their their, their uh, city council members and uh, mayors uh, to a much greater extent responsible for what's going on in their communities. Uh, it's the states uh, that are that are in between. Uh-huh. And if you look at political science, uh, the number of political scientists who focus on state politics is very small. You know, most people don't go in for studying states. Uh, everybody wants to write about Congress and the presidency, and um, yeah, it's great theater. Uh, the states are the states are the orphan in the system. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting observation. The states are the orphan. Wow, huh? And one of the things that that happens at local elections that I've noticed is sometimes they are uh, done on separate years. Like for example, there's a city council race coming up here in 2023, not 2024. I wonder, you know, if if they were done on the odd years, if that might turn out better. Uh, I I don't know, but uh, well, um, it, the argument is made from time to time that if you separated uh, the national election years from uh, state and local elections, um, you would get more attention paid to what's going on at the state and local levels. But in fact, uh, when you don't have a, a race uh, for the White House or or a high visibility U.S. Senate race uh, going on in a particular year, the turnout is much lower. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes abysmally low. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the solution. Yeah. Well, there have to be some solutions, and we'll get to that before the end of our discussion here. And in your essay, you do cite some political scientists who talk of what they call the miracle of aggregation, in that errors and ignorance balance each other out in uh, resulting in usually reasonable decisions. Speak to this, please. Well, um, I will, uh, although I don't have much belief that it's an accurate um, <laughs> idea. But um, take juries. Um, ju- juries, if you pick the average jury, of, of uh, an ordinary jury of average citizens, it is, the argument is often made that the individual jurors will make mistakes, but but as a group of 12, the mistakes will balance each other out and um, the jury will uh, come to a reasonable conclusion. Um, that may or may not be true, but um, th- th- there are other examples of this that are perhaps more intriguing. Um, if you put a, a 500 jelly beans in a jar, and you ask people, how many, how many jelly beans are in this jar? And you ask 100 people. And uh, most of the, uh, the, uh, the answers are way off, but if you add them all up, they're pretty close. 
So uh, that might be a miracle of aggregation. The problem is that it doesn't um, apply to ignorance in elections. <laughs> wow. when, 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 you, when it comes to elections, when you, when you multiply uh, ignorance many times over, what you don't get is um, uh, aggregate wisdom. What you get is more ignorance. <laughs> Yeah, there's no lack of examples of that. My goodness gracious. And, and some political uh, interests uh, like to uh, like it that way, that there's, there's an, you know, a larger amount of ignorance. They can get away with it. I mean, that's what uh, fascist and authoritarian governments depend on, is an ill-informed uh, people who don't believe in their own uh, wisdom and don't believe in their own uh, uh, power to do something about it. They, they, it, and I've been amazed at how successfully certain powers have convinced people, oh, I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do about it. And well, people use that as an excuse. I mean, of course, there's no, uh, one person can't determine the result of an right. election. I mean, if you, if, if, you go, if you go by that idea, then uh, there is no reason for anybody to vote. Um, but what we're talking about is the idea that if everyone votes um, and people are reasonably well informed, yes. um, a, a, a reasonable result will will uh, will occur. Um, and um, I'm not sure we're there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure we're there. We need to have education. And some, I forget which guest it was on the show, said we got to think with history. Well, we don't oftentimes think with history. And one of the, I don't know who made this quote, but one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But we, yeah, we, right. we have to. And I'll tell you, I, I, I'll show my age here. When I was in elementary school, we were led to believe that something called progress was inevitable in America. We could believe in it for sure. A straight line, straight line leading to an, a better future. You say that in the 50s, most state legislators were accountable, but that changed in the 1970s. Do tell. Well, um, as I think we've gone over before, in the 1950s, you had local elites, mostly business, chamber of commerce elites, yeah. bankers, merchants, lawyers, um, and they were able to determine to a large extent who would run for a legislature and who would run for the legislature. And, uh, and, and the members were accountable to them uh, in a certain way. Uh, if they displeased them, they could, they could be taken out. Um, it was in the 1970s particularly that we went to what I call self-nomination. Mm -hmm. So you had these local elites breaking down and um, – People who worked the hardest um, and who wanted it the most um, could get elected to legislatures. And I, uh, many years ago, argued that um, this is why Democrats uh, held the majorities all over, uh, majorities uh -huh. in legislatures all over the country because they produced uh, the better candidates, the, the more uh, the, the more aggressive candidates. And why was that? Because Democrats believed in government and they wanted to serve, and Republicans who uh, didn't believe in government uh, and didn't really like the idea of not being paid very much, um, right. didn't want to serve. Or if they served uh, a term or two, they would leave. And so Democrats, uh, without really commanding uh, majority sentiment in the United States, uh, became the majority, remained the majority party until 1994. Um, when, uh, on the, uh, as a result of the, the work of uh, a whole generation of conservative activists, 
Um, Republicans started generating better candidates um, who might not believe in government, but mm. uh, were willing were willing to serve. Um, Newt Gingrich, um, the former Speaker of the House, was instrumental in this, as as was Paul Weyrich, who was a conservative activist. And um, Republican the Republicans had a talent gap that was. Um, afflicting them in the 70s and 80s, and they largely closed that gap uh, in the 1990s. Mm. And um, Democrats have done a little better in the last decade at finding people who want to serve. Um, so it's fairly close right now, but uh, you, have, you have periods in which one party or the other is producing the best candidates, the most aggressive, the smartest, uh, the strongest, the best funded. Uh, and, and that's what tends to make legislative majorities uh, historically. Um, although, as we've discussed, that's been tempered somewhat in recent years by the fact that people are casting uh, votes on national issues where right. they should be voting on, on uh, state or local issues. I would hope they would. Again, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the laboratories of democracy, state legislatures. Our guest is uh, executive editor Alan Ehrenholt of uh, Governing Magazine, We're talking about legislators, legislatures. And uh, one of the smart things that Republicans have been doing these days is finding out what works and talking about you know, water, guns, lots of different issues that are not necessarily all that exciting. But the culture war and national uh, framing of every issue, or not every, but so many issues in terms of the culture war, that's working. That's connecting people. It, the legislatures may not be able to really do anything about it, but it's a way of connecting with people. And that's what legislatures are supposed to do, connect with people. And as you say, you know, there's so much uh, campaign funding is, is really, it's a huge and growing problem. And it leads to a collection of, uh, uh, as you say, ideologues and party hacks. And let's take this minute now to ask, what can be done about this? How can we get people to pay more attention to these legislative races. Any ideas? Well, I'm a firm believer in the principle that not every problem has a solution. Ah, um, uh. And uh, <laughs> certainly not every uh, uh, problem has a solution that's uh, in the immediate horizon. But, uh, you know, I think that there is a movement across the country nowadays to um, teach civics more at the high school level. Um, I don't think that's going to revolutionize right. uh, the degree of knowledge of, of that voters will have in state government, but that's a good idea. You know, I think we should teach civics, and we largely uh, stop doing that, um, partly because if you really want to talk about civics and how the government works, uh, you're getting into some very contentious issues on which people will disagree violently, and so we've, uh, we've stopped doing it. Oh. But... Um, I think we need to get back to educating people about our government and particularly about our states and how our states operate. And um, I think that would be that would be an improvement. Um, uh, Stephen uh, Rogers recommends a few things. Uh, he, he recommends um, uh, higher salaries for legislators. Perhaps we get a better uh, quality of uh, representative if we raise their salaries, yes. which is very di difficult to do politically, as you know. Yeah, I know. Um, 
his most intriguing recommendation is um, for unicameral legislatures. Um, that mm-hmm. is one chamber. Um, and on the idea that it would be easier for people to follow and they would understand better what was going on. If you didn't have the, the, the uh, intricate uh, maneuverings between a state house and a state senate, um, as you know, only one state in this country has a unicameral right. legislature. That's Nebraska. And um, until quite recently, it functioned rather well in a nonpartisan fashion. It is a technically nonpartisan one-chamber legislature. This year, it tended to uh, revert back, uh, unfortunately, to the partisanship, which is uh, more common in other states. But um, Nebraska has a good record of, of using its unicameral legislature to produce relatively uh, honest and, and decent government. So I know I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, that would be that would be something that probably would work in in the direction that you and I and uh, Steve Rogers are talking about. And I, I'm pleased to to read in your essay in uh, governing uh, some degree of optimism. You say in the years since World War II, we've seen enough changes in the makeup of state legislatures to justify a belief that things can change again, possibly for the better. You also say it's perfectly possible to be intelligent and ignorant at the same time. Uh, what about this suggests that improvement is possible? Are we seeing that? Are there any uh, actions that are going on with regard to uh, some of these suggestions as to uh, you know, funding education uh, and, and having perhaps a unicameral legislature? Well, well, I don't see that happening, but, right. but I, 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 would, uh, well, I would remind people that um, well, in 1950, you had uh, hopelessly uh, gerrymandered legislatures in which rural interests were dominant and cities had uh, very little ah. very little ability uh, to affect what was done uh, for and to them in legislatures. And uh, the Supreme Court took care of that in the 1960s with uh, a series of decisions. And um, legislatures can't be rural. Rural interests cannot gerrymander legislatures the way they did at one time. Mm. Um, we also, of course, had uh, gerrymandering um, and election rules that prevented minorities uh, from yes. uh, participating to the extent that that they ought to. Yes. And, and we have we, we we fix those things. Yes, we have other problems now, but um, mm. the fact that those two um, difficulties were addressed suggests that uh, that uh, politics does is susceptible to improvement um, it's it's sporadic um, but it does happen mm-hmm. so I wouldn't rule out the fact that uh, things could get better in the future but I have no uh, no prescription mm-hmm. for how that is going to be done well I'm reminded of yet another quote I'm full of quotes uh, FDR was meeting with uh, a Philip Randolph of the Pullman Porters uh, Union and he was trying a black man he was trying to uh, end discrimination and, and make things more fair and FDR told him and I don't know the exact words I agree with you I want to make it I want this to happen now go out and make me do it and that's what people yeah, need to right. do that's what people need to do. Well, if people are interested in reading more of your uh, work, uh, is there a, a website to which you can point them? Governing. Uh, they can go to governing.com, and uh, we have a whole, uh, uh, every day we have a whole uh, array of stories about states and cities, and uh, it's free. There's no paywall. Uh, anybody who wants to can go on and uh, 
and you'll learn a little something about what the states and cities are doing. By the way, I, you, I should be described as contributing editor. I used to be executive editor, ah, but okay. uh, that was a while ago. I'm, I'm now a, a contributing editor. Well, that's good, and uh, I hope people uh, check out Governing. I always enjoyed looking at it uh, back when it was, uh, you know, actual paper, and I was in the actual Senate. <laughs> but uh, it's good to know that we can uh, we can look at it now, and those of us who care about governing and care about democracy and self-government, what a concept. You have to be intelligent or at least educated somewhat, and it would be great to have civics courses as well, I must say. Hey, thank you so much for being with us today. Very educational and uh, some degree of hope. Always a good thing. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Bert. I enjoyed it. Keep it down If it's still Hanging around Catch away Well, it's long On the journey through the street To the corner you have to meet Keep keeping it down If it's hanging around In the dawn If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.